following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. I find everything beautiful. Faces, skin, I find it all beautiful. So said Pierre Paul Thomas, a Canadian man born blind uh, for 68 years. Uh, He was blind until... Uh, And actually, this occurred a decade ago this summer. He was given the gift of sight for the very first time in his life. What happened was that he fell down a flight of stairs. And while he was uh, undergoing an operation for that, the surgeon noticed that his particular type of blindness was actually curable. (laughs) And so the surgeon said, while we're at it, do you want us to fix your eyes too? And that's exactly what happened. Before this, the man said, everything was gray. And now this elderly man who's still alive is experiencing his world in light and color. Well, 2,000 years ago, another man uh, was given the gift of sight from an even greater physician. His blindness was actually not curable until he met the one who designed the human eye. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the end of Mark chapter 10. The end of Mark chapter 10. The the little story we're going to be looking at this morning brings to a close Jesus' deliberate teaching on discipleship. What it means to follow him in his upside-down kingdom where the first are last and the last are first. The very next scene in chapter 11 is Palm Sunday, which is going to begin the last week of Jesus's life. So there's a sense in which his earthly ministry ends here. And how does he end it? With a miracle that represents everything he's been teaching up to this point. If this scene of a blind man getting healed sounds a little familiar, if you're having a little biblical deja vu, It's because we saw Jesus do this once before in chapter 8. Remember that two-stage healing? That two-stage healing where everything was blurry for the man until Jesus touched him again and then he saw things clearly? We learned in that passage that through his healing touch, Jesus grants spiritual sight, but it rarely happens all at once. Now, what's the significance of having not just the one, but two blindness healings. I mean, after all, Mark is the most concise of the four gospel writers. He doesn't repeat things unless there's good reason to, unless there's a strategy. And there is 
a literary strategy in how he has arranged things here. Mark is showing through two healings of physical blindness our need to be healed of spiritual blindness. In other words, the bookends, chapter 8 and chapter 10, are about literal blindness, but the stories in the middle, as we've seen, are about an even deeper kind. The journey to Jerusalem has been a struggle for sight. As the disciples slowly figure out, not just that Jesus is the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah he is. We come now to the final healing miracle in Mark's gospel. The final healing miracle, and we dare not underestimate it. Here here is what I think is the main thrust, the main idea of these verses at the end of Mark 10, and therefore the main idea of this message. Very simple. Far better to see spiritually than to have two working eyes. That's it. Far better to see spiritually than to have two working eyes. We'll think about that in two points this morning as we make our way through the passage. First, a blind beggar. We'll see that in verses 46 to 48. And second, a devoted disciple, verses 49 to 52. A blind beggar and a devoted disciple. First, a blind beggar. Verse 46, then they came to Jericho. Now, sorry, this is not the Jericho you learned about in Sunday school where the walls came tumbling down. It's not far from it, but it's not the exact same one. This one was built by Herod, and as you were heading on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, it was the last major city you stopped at, the last major city on the edge of the Judean wilderness. As Jesus and his disciples, we read, together with a large crowd were leaving the city of Jericho, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. And you can imagine the the scene, Jesus and his growing entourage, not just of disciples, but of, of a multitude of people are making their way out of Jericho with the next stop being Jerusalem. Remember, Jesus is leading the way. We saw that in verse 32. Jesus is leading this procession to Jerusalem, which he knows is a procession unto his very betrayal, arrest, and death. Surely this is weighing on him heavily. But Mark tells us that that amid all of that anticipation, all of the hubbub of the crowd, way off to the side sits a man who is invisible. He, He doesn't count on the cultural scorecard. He is a zero. As a blind person, he's disabled. As a beggar, he's dependent. No doubt he's smelly and dirty and ritually unclean and just frankly not a good look for a Messiah on the campaign trail. Or so everyone would have thought. But even here, before anything has happened yet in the story, we get a little clue that this is not just going to be an ordinary overlooked beggar. And that's because we get his name, or at least a nickname. (laughs) Bar, the word bar, meant son. So, Bar Timaeus 
just meant son of Timaeus, which is why Mark spells out there in verse 46 for his Roman audience who may not have been familiar with the way Hebrew names worked. I mean, it's very possible no one had ever really cared enough to find out this guy's name. And so people just called him Bartimaeus. Oh, that, that's Timaeus's boy, the blind kid. Verse 47, when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Rabbi, can I sit at your right or left? Can I be the greatest in your kingdom? No. It's just Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This man's condition is so desperate that he has nothing to lose. He, I mean, he's heard about this miracle-working rabbi, and he figures, this is my chance, my one chance. It'll literally pass me by if I don't manage to make myself heard. And so he starts yelling, Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. This is an incredible request. I mean, first of all, he identifies Jesus, rightly identifies Jesus as being more than just a miracle working rabbi. He calls him the son of David. It's a ringing declaration of faith in the long awaited Messiah. He's giving voice. This, this outsider, this outcast is giving voice to the ancient covenant promise from 2 Samuel 7 from a thousand years earlier that a, that a royal descendant will come from David's line who will sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. And amazingly, amazingly, the only time this title is given to Jesus by someone in the Gospel of Mark, this lofty, soaring title, Son of David, is from this obscure, helpless outcast. Verse 48, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, be quiet, hush, don't be a nuisance. Do, do you realize who this is? He can't be bothered by you. This guy has no power, no social capital. Surely people think it's going to be really easy to keep him quiet. Again, the, the, the crowd and the disciples, they're, they're all, I think, trying in their own sinful way to be helpful. It's not good. I mean, this is just basic logic. It is not good for Jesus' PR to be associated with societal scum. Up till now, if you think about it, the person who's most often been commanding others to be quiet is actually Jesus. He hasn't wanted his identity revealed. Why? Lest he be misrepresented, lest he be misunderstood. But as one commentator points out, for the first time in Mark, for the first time in Mark, the crowd rather than Jesus tries to silence someone. But the motive of the crowd is different from his injunctions to silence. Jesus wants to prevent people from premature and false confessions, whereas the crowd wants to prevent people from coming to Jesus. But their efforts are 
in vain. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Middle of verse 48. But he shouted all the more. Everybody thought he was being too loud. This guy feared he was being too quiet. This is a picture of tenacious, desperate faith. Beloved, I I wonder when you experience difficulty, when you endure a trial, even if you begin prayerful, if you don't immediately get what you've asked for, if you don't immediately get your heart's desire, do you start to lose heart? Do you start to quiet down? Or do you cry out all the more? Oh, friends, if you are suffering, keep crying out. Keep crying out. And you know, you don't have to do it alone. Sometimes the reason we grow quiet is because we're trying to do it alone. I mean, this is one reason, one of many reasons to come to the Sunday evening service every other week where we corporately cry out together. If your personal prayer life is weak, lean into your congregation's prayer life. The Lord is still looking and listening for believers and for churches whose faith can't be drowned out by the noise and the distractions and the discouragements of this world. And what was this beggar continuing to shout? One beautiful request. Son of David, have mercy on me. He gets it. As as one person observes, what Bartimaeus lacks in eyesight, he makes up for in insight. The kingdom of heaven is not for the well-meaning, but for the desperate. This guy was staking everything on one hope, everything on the hope that Jesus really was merciful, really was the Messiah. I mean, he had not been with Jesus for three years. He didn't know as many facts as the disciples did, but he had something that they did not. He had something that the crowds did not. Desperation. And that desperation became the doorway to insight. Kids, you may not know as much about the Bible as your mom and dad. You may not know as many religious facts. But the most important thing about you kids is not how much of the Bible you know. It's how much you want to know the God of the Bible. As we just sang, you can always come to Jesus with your needs, both big and small. It's a simple invitation to to pray to him with your questions, with your struggles, with your fears, with your sins. Bring to him your, your sins. He loves to listen. And even more, kids, he loves to answer, as we'll see here in this story. Perhaps others of you are are not yet following Jesus personally. But you're curious. I mean, after all, it's a perfectly good Sunday morning, and, and here you are in a church service. You're, you're intrigued. You're trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he, means from, uh, what he means for you. 
You just, you just need to know one thing, though, friend, as you're on this journey of discovery, not self-discovery, Jesus' discovery, okay? As you're on this journey, you need to know that there will be people who try to make you chill out, to grow quiet. Why are you going to church? Why are you taking this Jesus stuff so seriously? Calm down, chill out, stop being so obsessed. There will be another opportunity. But do you know how many more times in Jesus' life after this scene he passed through Jericho again? Zero. He never went back. If Bartimaeus had not seized this moment, he would have forever lost his opportunity. And whether you're a child or an adult, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by you today. You need to cry out in faith and in humility and not presume on his grace. Presume that there will be another chance. He'll pass this way again. There may not be. Today is the day of salvation. Cry out to your Savior in faith. And your life will never be the same. Which is precisely what we see next. A blind beggar. And number two a devoted disciple. Verse 49, Jesus stopped and said, call him. Many of us, when we think of little two-word phrases in the Bible, we may think of the most, uh, the shortest verse in the Bible, John 11, 35, Jesus wept, but we dare not miss the glory of this one. This little two-word phrase, Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped. On these two little words hung Bartimaeus's whole future. Again, j- just imagine the scene. This huge caravan of pilgrims, this unwieldy mass of people suddenly comes to a stop because the one leading the way, way up there, is just standing there, standing still. What's he doing? What could possibly stop the eternal Son of God in his tracks? A single cry for mercy. That's all it takes. Just as a mother can hear her child's cry amid a cacophony of babies, Jesus hears a solitary plea for mercy amid all the noise in the world. And the fact that he stops for This guy, the guy no one would expect, is just one more example of him coming to earth not to be served, but to serve, even in the most counterintuitive, countercultural ways. Oh, beloved, it was those who faded into the background who captured Christ's gaze. Who captures yours? What kind of person do you stop for? I mean, don't think, well, I'm, I'm busy. I, I, I rarely stop for anything. Friend, you do. Maybe it's your job or relationship or exercise or entertainment. I don't care how busy you are. You stop for something. 
Jesus Christ stopped for people. Who is one person? Oftentimes, applications in sermon can be, they can hover so high and be uh, pretty abstract, pretty generic, and so they, they, we can conveniently squirm our way out of them. I don't want you to think of three people. I want you to think of one person in your life, outside your normal social circles. Maybe you don't even know their name yet, that you could slow down enough to really see and listen to this week. Jesus heard Bartimaeus because people like him, people others didn't bother to notice, were like magnets for his heart. One of River City's official priorities is meaningful mercy, meaningful mercy ministry. I mean, we, we've rallied around this core priority as well as others ever since our core team phase as a church. Here, here's part of what we say. We do not exist just for ourselves, but for those who do not yet know Jesus. A study of the Gospels reveals that Jesus displayed one emotion more than any other, compassion, and we are called to walk in his steps. So we will regularly rehearse what life was like before we knew Christ and where we would be without him. In light of his undeserved love, we delight to meet tangible needs in his name. With our words, we speak the gospel. With our lives, we show its grace. At our members' meeting last Sunday night, the elders proposed a budget which you, as members, will vote on in August. We're thrilled to hopefully fund ministries like Speak for the Unborn. But to be honest, this particular priority of meaningful mercy ministry is something I think we can grow in as a church. Even though it would be easier, simpler, more convenient for the elders to just tell you what our local justice and mercy partners are going to be, we think it's wiser actually to follow member initiative and involvement as we think about what to support. Why? Well, because we prefer to build trellis, infrastructure trellis, around the vine of Christ's mercy that is spreading through your lives throughout the week in both word and deed. That's what happened with Speak for the Unborn. The elders didn't initiate that partnership we simply saw some of you getting involved in a really good thing, and we wanted to help facilitate it. So in light of this passage, the challenge and encouragement is keep getting to know people like Bartimaeus here in Richmond. I mean, I say keep getting to because many of you already are, and it's a huge encouragement and if you get involved with a, with a local gospel-centered effort to help the disabled or the disadvantaged or the overlooked, mobilize some fellow members to serve with you and let us know how we can help. Share with your fellow church members on a Sunday evening. Enlist us in the effort and in prayer. The elders are excited to watch you as a body lead out in investing faithfully and creatively in the lives of those who have little to offer in return. May the Lord continue to grow us, not just in gospel proclamation, but also in gospel demonstration. 
Because after all, showing mercy is not just the job of a Christian. Mercy is the mark of a Christian. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Middle of verse 49. So they called to the blind man. Cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Well, they've really changed their tune. <laughs> I mean, one moment, it's at, one moment it's quiet down, you beggar. The next it's, hey, man, cheer up. What accounts for this sudden change? One thing. They saw how Jesus valued him. Notice also that Jesus doesn't directly do it. He doesn't directly call Bartimaeus. He tells his disciples to. He enlists faithless disciples to do the work. I mean, this simple observation should encourage us in our evangelism this summer. Evangelism is the privilege of, even though we are often faithless, being used by Jesus to deliver news. This is why it should encourage us, because evangelism is not making someone come. Evangelism is simply looking at someone and saying, cheer up, he is calling you. Verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. Mark doesn't simply tell us that he came to Jesus. He shows us how. The man jumps to his feet. The same faith that propelled his voice to keep crying out is now propelling his legs to run. He's excited before he even really knows what's going to happen. He's just running in the general direction of the object of his hope. He's eager because he has staked everything on the hope, as we sang earlier, that Jesus is both strong and kind. Not strong at the expense of kind, not kind at the expense of strong, but gloriously both. And notice what the beggar brings to Jesus. Nothing. He throws his cloak aside, which would have represented all his worldly possessions. In other words, this beggar does what the rich young man earlier in the chapter refused to do. Verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. This is the most important question he's ever been asked. What do you want me to do for you? And it's not the first time we've heard it. Does it sound familiar? It's the exact same question Jesus posed to James and John back in verse 36. What do you want me to do for you? To which they had a ready answer. We want you to let us sit at your right and your left in your glory. But here the blind man simply says, Rabbi, I want to see. Son of David, I want to see. James and John requested glory. Bartimaeus requests mercy. While they were busy scrambling for status, all this blind beggar can do is beg for sight. Do you see what Mark is up to? What he's showing us? 
the disciples could physically see, but they were still spiritually blind. Meanwhile, Bartimaeus was physically blind, but he could spiritually see. Verse 52, go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. The word healed is also the word for saved. What's happening is not physical healing at the expense of spiritual healing or the reverse. The physical and the spiritual are coming together as Bartimaeus is holistically restored. And when Jesus says, your faith has healed you, the point is not that there is some unique intrinsic power to Bartimaeus's faith. It's that his faith has grasped the right object. Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the savior. And he performs this miracle and every miracle not on the basis of our faith, on the basis of the strength, the intensity, the quality on, of our faith, but on the basis of its object. I mean, if, if you're afraid to step on an airplane, really afraid to step on an airplane, but you do it anyway, and you shuffle to your seat, and, and you sit down next to someone who's got a million frequent flyer miles and doesn't have a care in the world, and as the plane's taking off, you're sweating while they're already sleeping, if the plane and the pilot are reliable, which of the two of you is going to make it to the destination? You both will. Because your safe arrival at the ultimate destination is not finally because you had enough faith along the way. It's because someone flew you there. Middle of verse 52, immediately he received his sight. That is his physical sight, right? He's already seen in the most important sense, but now it's kind of like his eyesight catches up. It's, it's like a New Testament echo of of Job 42.5. I don't think this is a deliberate echo necessarily. I'm just saying it reminds me so much of Job 42.5. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That is Bartimaeus' whole life. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. His greatest wish has been granted. The Messiah has healed him, he's freed him, and he's told him to go. But amazingly, we don't read that the man starts walking around Jericho, looking at all the sights that for decade after decade he has only heard described. Now instead we read, end of verse 52, and he followed Jesus along the road. There's no thanks so much, sir, I can never repay you, goodbye. It's, I'm going wherever you do. I'm going wherever you go. I mean, think about what's happening here. Jesus has just said, go your way. He's healed him. He's freed him. He said, go your way. But instead, this guy begins following Jesus, which means what? It means that the way of Jesus has become the way of Bartimaeus. This is a brilliant picture of discipleship. This is Mark's model disciple. The last healing miracle in the whole gospel. We have been building to this. The, the model disciple transformed from a beggar beside the road, verse 46, to a disciple on the road, verse 52. 
In our scripture reading from Isaiah 42, earlier in the service, we heard the ancient promise that the Lord's servant would eventually come and among other things, open eyes that are blind. And later in that chapter, later in Isaiah 42, the Lord God says, I will lead the blind by ways they haven't known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. And here the same Lord God stands on the dirt road heading to Jerusalem, having done exactly what he promised. Another Old Testament prophet, Joel, had proclaimed, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And according to Sinclair Ferguson, no miracle in Mark's gospel more vividly illustrates that promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, if if you're listening to this and you're not yet following Jesus, where he's going, if you're trying to lead the way, then you haven't started following him at all. If you're not yet following Jesus where he's going, then the Bible says you are still blind to his beauty. We love you enough to tell you that, to tell you the truth. You are blind to the most beautiful thing you could ever see. The Apostle Paul says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of God's glory in the face of God's Son. But when the message of the gospel comes into a heart that's been prepared, you want to know what happens? God just turns the lights on. That's what it means to be born again. For the first time in your life, you see and savor the beauty of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, and you let go of your cloak or anything that might be encumbering you, and you run into his arms. And if you're an unbeliever, the bad news news is that you're blind and you deserve the darkness of God's judgment forever. But the good news is that this same God who, the same God who, deserves to punish you, loves you. This same God loves the unlikely, like Bartimaeus and like us. He loves those who have lived for themselves rather than for him. And he loves to turn the lights on. Repent and believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the most dazzling human being ever to walk the earth because he walked it all the way to a cross where he bore God's darkness, God's judgment in the place of sinners like you and like me and rose triumphant so that anyone in this room, just like Bartimaeus, anyone in this room who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus can have confidence that they, that you will be saved. And brothers and sisters, if you see Jesus as glorious today, if you see his spiritual beauty and you you savor it, then that means that the lights have been turned on in your heart. It's only because someone else has opened your eyes and, oh, that should foster humility. And not just humility, it should foster patience for those who don't yet see. 275 years ago this year, 
John Newton was trafficking human slaves over the Atlantic Ocean when God opened his eyes to see the horror of his sin and the beauty of amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, was blind, was blind, but now I see. And later in life, as an old pastor, Newton reflected on the implications of being given the gift of sight. I've given this illustration before, but it's, it's too appropriate here not to share again. Quote, a company of travelers fall into a pit. Okay, imagine the scene. A company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than Bartimaeus, after his own eyes were opened, would take a stick and beat every blind person he met. Well, in conclusion, it's, it's worth asking, why do we know Bartimaeus' name at all? I mean, this is actually a rarity in the Gospels. In fact, believe it or not, this is the only healing miracle in Matthew, Mark, or Luke where we get the person's name. So why Bartimaeus? Well, ancient scholars tell us this was a literary custom, a literary way of naming your source. In other words, the fact that Bartimaeus gets named means he went on to tell his story. And Mark's inviting people to go find him and talk to him if they have doubts. Church tradition even says Bartimaeus became a leader in the Jerusalem church. And what would have rang out every time his story was shared was the amazing truth that though he could not, for so many reasons, could not come to Jesus, Jesus came to him. And that the very first thing his eyes ever saw, once the scales fell, the very first thing he saw was a face. The face of the one who had loved him enough to stop and dignify him and heal him. And that has everything to do with what will happen the moment we die. And our faith, if we're in Christ, our faith becomes sight. Listen to how one Presbyterian pastor a hundred years ago imagined that great day. Quote, when, when we awake from the dream men call life, when the scales of time and sense have fallen from our eyes and the garment, the cloak of corruption has been put off, when we awaken in the everlasting morning, the sight of Jesus will stir us and hold us. Oh, there will be many wonderful sights in heaven. 
the sea of glass mingled with fire, the great white throne, the river of the water of life, the tree of life yielding her fruit in season, those marvelous 12 gates made of solid pearl, the faces of the patriarchs and the prophets, the apostles and the martyrs, and the faces of those we have loved and long since lost. But most wonderful of all will be that face into which Bartimaeus looked outside the gate of Jericho. After his eyes had been opened, the face of him who loved us and redeemed us and washed us in his precious blood. That is the sight we all need. That is the sight for which we were made. And that is the sight, if you are in Christ, that awaits you and will make every struggle, every hardship, every tear along the way utterly worth it. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you for being a Savior who stops and looks and listens and extends mercy. We thank you for saving wretches like us through sheer amazing grace. We thank you for finding us when we were lost and granting us sight when we were blind. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory and your beauty and to see the dignity of others around us each and every day. And Lord, we trust that your grace, which has brought us safe thus far, thus far is the same grace that is going to lead us all the way home. We pray these things in the beautiful name of your Son. Amen.